Thank you very much uh, for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Today, I have uh, Robert Pittman as my guest. Rob provides policy advice on extractive sector transparency and governance for resource-rich countries, civil society, and international institutions. Rob leads the uh, Natural Resource Governance Institute's governance programming on climate risk disclosure, contract transparency, licensing and supplies, and has authored several publications on these and other topics. Rob, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thanks for having me, Sheila. It's great to be here. That's wonderful. So I, I wonder if we could just ask, tell us why you think that suppliers uh, have been overlooked in the extractive industry governance debate. Yeah, so I think I think that it's worth starting here by thinking about what the governance uh, movement has gained in recent years. Um, huge strides have been made in making resource um, revenue payments to governments uh, more transparency through through the extractive industries transparency initiative and through national legislation um, in headquarter countries such as Canada, the EU, and Norway. Um, this is a really great achievement to, to make sure that we, we understand sort of tax revenues. But our estimates suggest that spending on suppliers rem, represents a similarly large flow of money and yet remains a total mystery in many contexts. Um, using data from Reistad and SNP, um, we at the Natural Resource Governance Institute found that before the pandemic, around two thirds of every dollar, 66 cents of every dollar, um, spent in the extractive industries went to suppliers and that totaled as much as a trillion dollars a year globally for the upstream industry alone. Um, at this scale, um, that amount of money has huge consequences for a bunch of issues that um, have a high level of public interest. These include how much profit and taxable income the extractive industries generate, um, opportunities to build local content, and also corruption. Um, the other thing that, that, um, that is really, really relevant um, is, is the energy transition. Um, because efforts to decarbonize the global economy are gonna have a huge impact and implications for producer countries. Um, fossil fuel, um, fuel producers um, are faced with a an enormous amount of um, volatility um, and an anticipated long-term decline in oil, gas, and coal demand. Um, so a better understanding of the connections between the extractive industries, local supply chains, and um, the employment they, they generate is gonna be really, really important um, to make sure that just and equitable plans can be put in place to weather those changes. Um, at the same time, in uh, mineral-rich countries, um, the, the energy transition um, means, means um, a, a, a boom um, in demand for critical transition minerals. Um, and um, what we've seen, if we sort of analyze previous booms, um, is that they've contributed taxes, um, but it remains the case that mining has generated few opportunities um, um, for, for businesses in low and middle income countries. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that we can all agree that this time needs to be different. Right. So, uh, yeah, that, that makes sense. So basically what you're saying is that there is 
a, a, an aspect of uh, extractive projects, which if tapped could add to the already uh, enormous contribution to some economies, but that because we haven't done this, we have missed an opportunity and that the timing is also important because now we're also entering the transition to energy, which is going to increase the supply of minerals and, and, and the supply chain. Let me ask you then, I mean, it's easy to say the supply chain. There are many aspects of the supply chain uh, when one is looking at uh, you know, mineral, oil and gas projects. Do you have a specific focus in the, the aspect of the supply chain? Yeah, um, I think it's it's really, really important to bring up framing. Um, most conversations about supply chains in the extractive industries um, tend to revolve around um, the way that raw materials make their way from the oil well or the mine site um, to the end consumer. And that is really important. But um, that focus means that we forget about the companies that supply the goods and services to extractive industry projects. Um, and you know, I, I think if we if we zoom out and we think about um, petroleum or mining projects, we usually think of them as in terms of those big name sort of exploration and production companies that that own the rights to explore or exploit resources. Companies like Shell, Exxon, Rio Tinto, BHP, or SOEs like um, Gazprom or Cadelco. Um, yet in reality, it's um, it's you know, the suppliers of, of goods and services actually play an enormously important role in the actual day-to-day -day running of these projects. Um, these companies are used at all stages of um, extractive industry projects during exploration, development, operations, maintenance, decommissioning. Um, and they range in size from multi-billion dollar um, international conglomerates like um, SLB, which was formerly Slumberger, Halliburton, Caterpillar, um, to more specialized local firms that, you know, maybe only have a handful of employees. Right. So uh, it's what you're saying is that it's important to disaggregate the supply chain and have a better understanding of uh, who the players are and the order of magnitude. Because most people think of supply as the guy from which you buy the spanner or the earth moving equipment. But what you're saying is uh, supply also embraces service provision, both at uh, installation, operation, and then uh, maintenance, and that whole project cycle. And that it, it's the totality of this that accounts for these trillions in, in business. Is that right, uh, Rob? Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, depending on the project and depending on the specific um, EMP company involved, um, suppliers play different roles. Some, some EMP companies um, do a lot more in-house, while others will almost give everything to um, a, a large services company to, to, to run. So, so uh, you, you've already mentioned that uh, even the companies that develop the resources uh, are, are different. You, you've made reference to Gazprom, you've made reference to uh, Quedelco, uh, Rio Tinto and others. And, and some are listed companies, some are not, some are state-owned, et cetera. I, I, does it matter from your perspective of uh, the importance of leveraging supply chain, what type of company we are talking about? Um, I think it makes um, 
you know, it makes some difference. I mean, clearly, like um, listed companies are a lot more, um, you know, they're a lot more transparent. They have a lot more you know, requirements um, on them in, you know, in their in their listing requirements. Um, so, you know, that that means that, that they're easier to, to sort of understand. Um, I think um, I think, though, that, you know, what, what we're, when we're looking at this, you know, from our perspective, I think what, what we're interested in um, is understanding sort of the layer beneath um, the EMP companies um, on on specific projects um, around the world. And, and, you know, regardless of whether, you know, those companies are engaging with with listed companies or or, or private companies. Um, you know, it's it it is still sort of somewhat of a black box, um, and so so yeah. In that respect, it it you know it, it doesn't it doesn't actually make a huge difference. The the other thing I would say, and you know, this is something I will talk about a bit later on, is is the role of um, SOE state-owned enterprises in um, supplier selection and management. This is this is something that you know has can be somewhat problematic um, and you know I'll talk about this um, later on you know there's there's a lot of um, um, links um, to sort of corruption and mismanagement with suppliers and SOEs. Sure but but I mean uh, based on what you've said now um, what what are the aspect of this ecosystem of uh, suppliers, maintenance contractors, uh, project managers that that you think lacks transparency and, and, and on which we ought to shed more light, uh, particularly with a view to avoiding, uh, if you wish, revenue leakage or even loss of benefits by uh, host countries? Yeah, so... Um... I think I think well so maybe maybe it would maybe it would be helpful to sort of run into each of the three areas that I I flagged at the beginning of the podcast um, in turn. So you know the first the first thing I talked about was um, you know this point that you were talking about um, um, leakage of, of benefits and revenues and um, profit and taxable income. So I can talk about that. Um, the other, the other two were local content and um, and corruption. But so, so let's let's start with with this with this point about um, um, leakage of, of benefits through taxable income um, that, that the extractive industries um, generate. Um, I think I think this is an area where there's a shared interest between all stakeholders. So companies they want to keep costs down. Um, because it means greater profits. Governments and citizens, they're going to want to keep costs down um, because it means a larger tax base. Yet, um, you know, if we if we look at, you know, the industry press, um, we look at analysis from, from, um, from you know, consultants who are helping um, the industry, we see that cost overruns are incredibly common. Um, EY um, did a study um, in 2021 that shows that 64% of mining projects ran over budget or schedule um, with an average cost overrun sitting at 39%. Um, similarly, um, a, a study for the petroleum sector that they did in 2019 showed that 38% um, of petroleum projects had a cost overruns. Now, most of the reasons for those overruns lie with corporate management practices, how effective a company's procurement and contract management systems are. 
Um, and where this is the case, I think that the most effective tool we have to punish bad practice and reward good practice um, is the market. Um, I'm certainly very skeptical about the value of third parties intervening in um, procurement and contract management processes. Um, yet I do think that there are a few places that public debate and scrutiny and transparency can be helpful. And I'm, I'm gonna name three. Um, the first of these are situations in which non-commercial agendas influence procurement decisions. Um, so in some cases, companies or governments um, may want to sacrifice um, efficient procurement in favor of other non-commercial goals. Um, this might be delivering employment, stimulating um, local business opportunities, or encouraging other in-country benefits. Um, and these are, these are totally legitimate aims, um, but it's essential um, that the way that those policies and targets are developed are mindful of the trade-offs involved. Um, and have adequate accountability mechanisms to ensure that they don't become a backdoor through which favoritism, corruption, and mismanagement can enter the procurement process. Um, I'm going to talk about this a bit later, but suffice to say, it's it's important to make the, the make sure that the lines of influence are clearly defined and there's sufficient scrutiny um, around um, the the policy discussions to ensure that the power to interview interfere with procurement doesn't go um, awry. Um, and yeah, this is this is an area where you know the accountability of state-owned enterprises is particularly important. Sure. So that's so, that's the first issue. I've, I've got two more. Um, go ahead. Um, the, so the, the second issue um, where I think you know there's a public interest is um, where related parties are used. Um, now the use of related parties and you know suppliers is is very common. Um, and you know. Companies will often sell to different parts of themselves um, and, and subsidiaries um, in day-to-day in -day functioning. Um, but you know, citizens are concerned that it can take an abusive um, form through what's called transfer mispricing, um, in which companies can shift profits from high-tax jurisdictions to those that you know where they pay less. Um, and in recent years, there's been a huge amount of effort through the OECD um, G20 initiative called BETS um, to tackle these issues and improve the co coherence of international um, tax rules. And I won't be able to do justice to all that's going on there um, in this conversation, but um, one form of transparency I think that's quite important here is um, the publication of country by country reports, which show how companies allocate income, profit, taxes paid and economic activity among the jurisdictions in which they um, operate. Um, and, you know, we're, we're seeing movement here. You know, publication of these reports um, is required by the GRI and the ICMM. Um, the, the third area where I think that a public interest, um, you know, and, and, you know, scrutiny can be helpful um, in, um, in supplier transparency and when it comes to you know, cost overruns um, is where suppliers have increased negotiation power, i.e. where um, maybe some supplier segments could have mon monopolistic or ol oligopolistic power to sort of set prices. Um, and this is, you know, this is something for um, country regulators and, and, and the business press to sort of, you know, analyze. But, you know, just, just to you know, give an example here, you know, illustrating the dominant position of some companies um, 
you know, the US Department of Justice decision in 2016 to reject the proposed merger between Halliburton and Baker Hughes noted that those two companies together with um, Schlumberger at the time controlled 94% of the US offshore directional drilling services market. So that kind of market concentration is something that we need to be mindful of, um, particularly following downturns when you know a lot of supplier companies go out of business and, and those that survive sort of mop up what, what's, um, what's there. But overall, um, I'd say that um, when we're thinking about this issue of costs, um, um, I, I'd say, you know, I'm very skeptical of the value of third parties intervening in companies and procurement um, and contract management processes. But I do think that sort of a more awareness of, of um, you know, what's going on there, the way that decisions are made, I think is is really, really important. And I think it's something that, that um, you know, civil society and other actors, you know, haven't paid it as much attention to as, as maybe they should in the future. Mm. So uh, as somebody who, who's been in mining, I, I follow your, your logic uh, entirely. And, but, but listen to you, uh, Rob, two things come to mind. The first is the that everything you say uh, makes sense in, in that more scrutiny in how uh, a, a company that is part of a bigger consortium functions and trades with each other so that nobody's disadvantaged. Uh, my challenge is this, and I wonder whether you have a view. With everything you say, my sense is that you need a more informed, more capable technically and financially and commercially service civil society. Am I correct? And, and if we don't have that kind of civil society, what does that uh, mean for our ability to use public voice to inject more transparency, or for that matter, to make transparency more useful to uh, civil society in a space in which everything you're asking is legitimate, but actually it just adds to the complexity in terms of the skills level necessary to interrogate uh, that bits, those bits of information if and when they become available. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that um, we do, we're always, we always want a more skillful and um, a more resourced civil society. I think it's a really important sort of backbone upon which you know um, effective um, scrutiny of decision making is made. Um, I do think that you know the civil society we have, um, you know, it's not it's not terrible, um, you know, and you know as I as I flagged from the very beginning. Like, they they have um, done a really really important job, um, sort of expanding sort of the information um, and the scrutiny um, around payments that are made to government. And what I what I'm essentially saying um, and you know arguing for in in this work on suppliers is that we need the sort of the same sort of um, well the same sort of process to take place now with suppliers it's it's sort of the the next area of the industry where where um, we should be looking in a civil society sort of developing our sort of understanding and and um, toolkit and frameworks and you know maybe you know another way of thinking of it is that when civil society um, started out on 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 the path to better understanding um, 
revenue flows and taxation. Um, you know, civil society didn't know a, a huge amount about it, and um, it wasn't it wasn't sort of a, a topic where there was um, you know a huge amount of understanding. Um, and you know, through fifteen twenty years of hard work, um, now it's now it's a very very well established um, um, area with huge amounts of materials and. Um, huge amounts of scrutiny and huge amounts of company reporting, um, um, and you know maybe maybe um, you know this is something that that we can sort of expand to other areas of the industry to ensure that that you know that, that you know leakages aren't aren't apparent in those areas as well, and good policy is being made. Sure. So I mean, it it seems uh, self-evident, uh, but you know. For what is worth, you clearly see transparency as the first step in, in that process. There, I ask you why you see the solution specifically in terms of the lens of transparency. Yeah, um, I mean, I think I think the, the reason I see transparency as such an important um, first step is that despite the size um, of spending, um, on suppliers, um, there's there's very little information about them, um, and this means that it's it's really hard to determine the scale of the benefits and challenges relating to suppliers. You know whether local content policies are working, um, whether you know whether whether um, you know you know issues with with costs etc. Um, it's it's hard to understand which policies you know, are working or not. Um, who's performing well and who's perform not well, performing very well? It's very hard to understand. Um, and this is why I think you know we need some more transparency. We need um, a, more of a light on this area, and and then we can we can um, we can move forward. Sure. So I, I want to take you back to the subject of cost overruns. Uh, cost overruns are, are very uh, problematic, especially when one is uh, looking at, say, state-owned entities uh, and public projects. I'm quite intrigued that Ernst uh, uh, Young suggests that in mining, up to 60-plus percent of projects uh, suffer cost overruns and delays. I have to say, you know, for the 13 years in mining, a project manager wouldn't keep a job if they worked like that. So I wanted to check, it, it, was this all mining companies, including state-owned or privately-owned companies or uh, publicly-listed companies, or did they just throw everything in the kitty? Do you know? Um, I think it's they, they did a, a sample of mining mega-projects around the world. Hmm. Yeah, well... You know, I, I mean, cost overruns from a, a mining or, or oil and gas project perspective really means one thing, which is that it's inefficient, which is that there's a loss of revenue, which is there's a diminishing of margins, which is there's no profitability. Uh, unless there's some fat built in. Uh, if we follow that logic, it would suggest that a lot of companies, at least that are subject to some kind of significant project uh, development, would not be profitable. But you know, you know, they did the research, so you and I have to take uh, their weight for it. 
Um, you, you also flagged the issue of corruption as an, a, a major issue. Um, again, is I mean, this is true. Uh, supply chains are, are subject to all sorts of things. Uh, do you have a sense of how transparency might help plug this particular problem? Yeah, um, I, I do. Well, maybe it's it's worth sort of just flagging, you know, just how how um, big the sort of the supplier corruption issue is in the extractive industry. Um, you know, analyzing cases brought under the US FCPA, the Foreign and Corrupt Practices Act, um, we saw that suppliers were involved in most accusations of wrongdoing in the extractive sector. Um, and we analyzed around um, 40 corruption scandals and foreign bribery state cases in at least 29 countries. Um, we saw that all sorts of countries were involved. Um, we saw that all sorts of companies were involved, major international firms, as well as smaller specialized um, firms. Um, you know, talking with people in the industry, we, we heard that one of the things with suppliers is that, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of pressure um, to to win contracts and there's so many contracts all the time and you know that this this might sort of um, weigh in to, to part of the, the issue also the use of agents and, and intermediaries around the world um, and finally the the big the big question is about the role that SOEs play um, in in, um, in supplier corruption cases we saw that SOEs are, are are there in so many of the cases. Um, and the vulnerabilities with SOEs stem from weak oversight, um, the fact that they have this ability to um, hire suppliers themselves, but then also influence the procurement um, and decisions of private sector operators, either, you know, sometimes they're on procurement committees, um, and sometimes, you know, they are the, the body that's in charge of, um, uh, assessing local content um, regulations or other regulations. Um, and so these overlapping roles mean that it's really hard to pinpoint their exact mode of in influence. Um, and, you know, I, th I think that, you know, when it, when it comes to transparency, um, you know, having, when it, when it comes to transparency of SOEs, having a sense of, you know, what are the SOE's roles? How do they how do they play a role in procurement? Um, where do they make decisions? What committees do they sit on? All of this kind of information would be would be very very helpful to to sort of um, better sort of analyze um, how they have that influence. But it's it's not only SOE's um, that we need to be thinking about. Um, if we think about um, um, other other sort of corruption issues in the in the industry. One, one of the other ways is that, you know, suppliers are used um, by um, local political elites um, um, to um, either for, for their own political benefit um, or they're used by economic elites to, to, um, to, to essentially, you know, um, make money for, for their own sort of um, groups of, you know, of, of companies. Um, and having a better sense of, you know who owns um, companies that um, enter into the supply chain would be would be really really important. Um, and there's been some really interesting developments on that point. Um, one that I can think of is in um, in Lebanon, um, 
the 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 Lebanese Petroleum Administration has um, published a list of all of the suppliers um, that that um, you know have, have been involved in in the petroleum project there, um, and and then a list of all of the beneficial owners um, of of those supplier companies um, that that were employed. So it's a very interesting um, um, way to do it, um, and I think you know. What's really important is they're doing that, closing, closing the space for corruption. You're also um, um, making people aware of who is who is getting the contract from from a local contact perspective. That's important because it then means that you know local suppliers know then who they can go to for or or look at for for you know other supply chain opportunities. Um, and I think from the perspective of the EMP company. It's great because it um, it means that you're you're no longer um, sort of you, well you, you're essentially buying that that social license to operate because um, people then are like less skeptical um, about you know your supply chain your relationship um, with suppliers it means it's harder to 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 just you know come out with an accusation that that, that you know these companies are corrupt and they're not benefiting anybody um, if you're totally you know above board with you know, this is how we're doing things and this is who we're employing. Absolutely. We are on our last two minutes, so I'm going to bundle two questions together for you. Um, the first is, is one that has come to mind, and I, and I wanted just to check. This know your customer uh, drive, is it helping at all in being able to scrutinize the supply chain and know the caliber of people and the extent? In other words, is if you have looked at it at all, uh, have you found that it is helpful in profiling uh, and providing more transparency? And uh, you've mentioned uh, Lebanon as uh, an example. Are there other uh, you know, good uh, practices that exist that others can learn from as a, a parting shot? Absolutely. So um, just very quickly on, you know, the new customer and the drive to sort of improve due diligence standards um, around the world. I, you know, I think I think this is really important. I think, um, um, you know, this in some way is is being driven by, you know, the threats from, you know, um, you know, law enforcement around the world. But, you know, I think I think that this this does then mean that. That, you know the companies that are maybe a little bit less well resourced um, are forced to sort of up up their game. So that's that's quite important. Um, when it comes to really good um, examples around the world, um, I can I can name a few. I mean, I, I think I think one that I really really like is um, actually from the UK. Um, the government authorities in the UK um, have this fantastic tool. Called the Pathfinder, um, the, and what what it does is it's a place where all um, companies working on the, um, in in the North Sea, um, and all oil companies working in the North Sea, can post information about um, their their upcoming procurement, um, their supplier spending. They then produce they they post information about all of the contracts they award, the contract band. Um, and then they provide contact information for for each of those um, those those contracts, um, so that yeah, so that local suppliers can can get involved in in that supply chain. Really important. 
um, similar to, to what I was saying with, um, with um, Lebanon. Um, there are also um, standards being evolved in this area. Um, there's, there's a standard called the Local Procurement Reporting Mechanism, which is now being um, implemented by um, 12 companies. Um, really, really, um, you know, great sort of um, evolving um, standard. Um, and, you know, that, that would be important because, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier on, one of the problems is that um, there is, you know, the, the information that we're getting is, is sort of piecemeal um, um, on, and, and, it, and it doesn't necessarily speak to each other. So, so efforts like the LPRM mean that, you know, we will get a bit more sort of harmonization of information, um, um, which, which would be very, very helpful. Um, and um, the, the, other, the other thing is that we're seeing, um, you know, organizations such as, you know, national EITI processes um, weighing in on this. And, you know, I think a great example of, a, of an EITI process um, that is um, producing um, data on, on um, on, on this is, um, is is Senegal. They they have a huge amount of information on you know, the amount that um, is spent on suppliers, um, and um, yeah, and that 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 you know that would be great to see um, elsewhere, um, and you know result in comparable information that we can use. Fantastic. Well, uh, Rob, that's all we had time for. Thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I will be following this initiative with some interest. Thank you for joining me. Thanks a lot, Sheila.